It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, August 14th, 2020. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. An emergency ordinance that allows assembly members and staff to attend more online meetings nearly stalled at the assembly table on Tuesday after some members argued that the ordinance was too complicated and gave too much authority to the mayor. The new measure allows the mayor to waive existing rules so assembly members can attend more meetings telephonically if needed. Currently, members may only attend four meetings telephonically in a calendar year and only two times back-to-back before they're in violation of city code. City Administrator John Leach described the ordinance as house cleaning and said it did not grant any extra powers. But some assembly members, like Valerie Nelson, weren't convinced. I've never been a fan of retroactive ordinances, and I disagree that this only allows the mayor to excuse us if we've missed too many damn meetings. And I kind of get tired of the thing that everything's an emergency, and it's been an emergency since March 1st. It's kind of like we're trying to cover our tracks. Nelson said the way she interpreted the ordinance, it also gave the authority for the mayor to allow for last-minute agenda changes, and she expressed frustration that at a recent meeting, a resolution strongly encouraging masks was added to the agenda after the deadline. Municipal Attorney Brian Hansen said that wasn't his intent, but rather to make sure the city was being transparent as it addressed the ways the COVID-19 pandemic has created logistical challenges for the public meeting process. I'm trying to help everyone out. I, I really am. My intent is, it, it really is good, it's good here. It's, it's not to, it's, I'm not trying to be sly here. You know, we've got a bunch of people here who have, have had telephonic participation in a whole bunch of meetings that's in violation of our code. Member Richard Wien called the language in the ordinance unduly complex and said he wouldn't vote in favor of it. The gobbledygook within this 2020-44 uh, masquerading as uh, something that it's not. Just read through it. Number five, emergency declaration. Come back with a simplified telephonic um, um, ordinance uh, to make some changes, and I'm all in because I understand that. Member Kevin Mosier made a motion to postpone the ordinance until the next meeting to give the public more time to read it. The motion to postpone failed three to four, with members Nelson, Mosier, and Ween voting to postpone, and the emergency ordinance then passed five to two, with members Nelson and Ween opposed. It is in effect for two months, although the Assembly can vote to extend it. British Columbia has released a long-awaited cleanup plan for the Tulsa Chief Mine. The Canadian mine, 40 miles northeast of Juneau, has been leaching acidic runoff into a tributary feeding into the Taku River for years. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports. The legacy mine was only open for about a decade. It hasn't produced ore since the 1950s. For years after, untreated acidic runoff has been leaching into the Tulsa River, about six miles from the transboundary Taku River. A number of companies have tried to restart mining. The most recent was Chieftain Metals, which went bust in 2016 and is now in receivership, with a third-party firm managing its assets. All that while a number of cross-border studies have documented pollution from the mine. There's been work by Fishing Game and British Columbia that talk about right near the area of the mine um, that there is exceedances to water quality standards in those areas. Terry Lomax is with the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. She's led a cross-border water sampling study with preliminary results that were released this spring. Samples taken in Alaska, she says, didn't show any direct threats to human or animal life on this side of the border. But that doesn't mean there aren't concerns from Alaska officials. 
Kyle Moselle has been heading up cross-border consultations with the B.C. government and tracking transboundary mining for the state's Department of Natural Resources. He says the province's release of the remediation plan on Wednesday is significant. This is progress. Uh, this is It's a complex effort that B.C. is taking on with addressing the legacy mining issues at the Tulsaquat Chief site. The state of Alaska has been involved and engaged with B.C., uh, on that for a number of years. And I just want to emphasize that, that this is a, a positive milestone in that process. Mine critics have seized on Tulsa Chief as an example of how difficult it is to clean up environmental messes once the company runs out of money. Guy Archibald is with the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. It's a cautionary tale. Uh, we have to be very careful before we tap into something that may result in a permanent discharge. Chieftain Metals' largest creditor is now fighting in court to salvage a chance to recoup tens of millions of dollars it invested in the mine. Attorneys for Westface Capital, a Toronto-based firm, told a bankruptcy court in Ontario this week it's trying to recoup about $47 million it's racked up in lost investments, costs, and fees. It wants the mine to be discharged from the court-ordered receivership, which is costing it a lot in fees to manage the assets. But the investor still wants to shop the mine around should a prospective buyer emerge to resume operations. Attorneys for the B.C. government and the Taku River Clingit First Nation have opposed this. B.C.'s lawyer pointed out that the mine has been in breach of Canadian law by allowing pollution to go unchecked for years. The province has asked the court to limit Westface's option to two years to find a buyer or drop any claim it has to the assets. In the meantime, the first phase of the province's plan calls for repairs to roads and bridges and an airstrip to access the remote site. Only then, BC officials note, could work begin on long-term plans to address environmental and public health concerns. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. The Alaska crew season met its demise last week, just a few days after it started. The only ship to sail in the state during the pandemic had to turn around halfway through its first trip after a passenger on board got the call that he had tested positive for COVID-19. All 36 passengers aboard the Wilderness Adventurer, operated by Seattle-based Uncruise, were quarantined at a local Juneau hotel. Most of those guests have now been cleared to go home, but the passenger who tested positive is still serving out a 14-day isolation period in Juneau. That's despite the fact that he has since tested negative. On a call with reporters Thursday, Uncruise chief executive Dan Blanchard said it's tempting to believe that the test at the airport was a false positive. Maybe it would be easy to land on saying this was a false positive because would, we'd all be able to point a finger at a test or something. But the reality is it isn't that simple. Blanchard says he's choosing to stand with the doctors and epidemiologists who consistently treat positive test results, especially when they come from the type of test used by the state lab, as positive cases. Here's Alaska State epidemiologist Joe McLaughlin. The bottom line is um, when we get a positive COVID test, let's say from the airport, we consider that patient to be positive. And what about the fact that the passenger on the uncruised ship tested negative just three days after testing positive? McLaughlin explains how that likely happened. So somebody who gets a subsequent test that's negative doesn't mean that the previous test was a false positive. It probably means that the person was tested somewhere down, uh, further down in their course of infection and didn't have enough virus in their respiratory secretions to trigger a positive test. 
Uncruise's plan to operate during the pandemic was approved by the state. All passengers were sent at-home COVID-19 tests a few days before the trip and had to arrive in Alaska with a negative test result in hand in order to board the ship. There was no transmission of the virus among passengers and crew, and no one ever showed any signs or experienced any symptoms of the infection. But the damage is done. The Wilderness Adventurer is sailing back to the shipyard in Seattle. Most of the passengers are either home or on their way home, and the company has canceled the rest of its scheduled trips for the year. Most schools on Prince of Wales Island plan to start the school year with a mix of at-home and classroom instruction. As KRBD's Rebecca Tauber reports, the island's four school districts are trying to find middle ground in ways to structure the school year during the coronavirus pandemic. School superintendents discussed their district plans at a virtual luncheon Wednesday afternoon. Klawak, Southeast Island, and Heidelberg school districts are all planning for half days, in which half of the student body would come into school in the morning and the other half in the afternoon each day. In between, staff would clean school buildings. We feel that's going to be best because that way we, we can put kids in front of teachers every single day, um, even though it's you know potentially a half time. That's Cloak Superintendent Jim Olean. Southeast Island School District has schools in the communities of Thorn Bay, Kassan, Nocatee Bay, Hyder, Hollis, Port Alexander, Port Protection, Whale Pass, and Kaufman Cove. It's planning for a similar model. There, some schools may be able to open for full-time in-person schooling, if buildings can accommodate social distancing at full capacity. South Island's district officials say they'll know more after registration this week, and that the district will provide different distance options depending on students' internet access. Superintendent Sherry Becker says plans also hinge on the constantly changing public health situation. It is going to be dependent upon the number of active cases on the island. In Heidelberg, Superintendent Bart Mari says that the first month will also likely have half of students in the morning and half in the afternoon. Under Heidelberg's plan, students would attend school Monday through Thursday. Fridays would be used as planning days for teachers in case schools have to shift to the red zone and send everyone home. Mari says he's worried about internet access when students cannot learn in person and that the district is hoping to provide financial assistance. It's not going to be easy, but we'll do our best to to accommodate the students, giving them internet access to their homes. Meanwhile, Craig is the only district planning to bring students in for full days at a time instead of half days. Superintendent Chris Rideon explained the plan. We would have half the students um, in school, you know, for two days of the week. The other half would then come in the other two days, and we would serve the student, all students, distance one day of the week and do a deep clean of the buildings. All four districts' models still have to go to their boards for approval in the coming weeks. Links to each district's plans are available at krbd.org. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Rebecca Tauber. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. This is Morning Edition.